All right, so last week we were in John 20, like we're going to be this week. This week we'll start in verse 22, but last week we, we saw that Jesus was raised and he appeared to his disciples and he says, peace to you. <clears throat> we talked about how, how true this is, that peace now is to us because of his death and his resurrection and how now, like it says in Romans 5, we can have peace with God through faith in Christ. And then he shows them his hands and his side to say, it's really me, it's not just a spirit. This isn't just an apparition, it's really me. And they rejoice. And then he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And now we're going to pick up in verse 22, which we also read last week, but I want to read it again, and we'll read through the end of the chapter this week. So starting in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in, uh, sorry, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me and yet believed. Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that uh, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're getting very close to the end of this gospel, the end of the gospel that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write. And now things are coming to a close. He's, he's wrapping up things that he's been trying to say this whole time, and we're coming to these conclusions. And I just ask that you would bring to remembrance the things we've read in this gospel. You'd, you'd bring to remembrance the things we've learned, so that when we come to these, these closing statements, these these, these really significant milestone things that they would have meaning to us and that they would um, draw us closer to you and cause us to desire to lift you up and to glorify you and your Son in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Alright, so the start of verse 22, he breathes on them and he, then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Like we said last week, that's the, the indwelling. That was the first moment that the Holy Spirit began to dwell in us. That now happens to every believer. When we believe in Christ, He gives us a Spirit. The Spirit comes inside of us. We should see evidence of that in ways like the fruits of the Spirit, whether it's love, peace, joy. We should also have gifts of the Spirit at work in us. All of those things are, are available to us, and we should be making progress in those things by the Spirit living in us. Um, this isn't the same as the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we are clothed with power or the Spirit is poured out upon us in God's timing for His own reasons for particular 
events or situations that he may want to have in our life. And that we'll see that in, in Acts, that that's a different event than this one. And there are two events that are separate in every Christian's life. So this week, um, we start off with this, this statement in verse 23. After he says, receive the Holy Spirit, then he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, this is a strange sentence, and let me first start off by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the apostles actually had the authority on their own to start forgiving sins. Just like we can't today just walk around just forgiving people's sins. That can't be what it means, and this is one of the errors that's happening in, in the Roman Catholic Church, is they believe that this authority to forgive sins has been passed down to the priests, and so you confess to a priest, and they're the ones who get to say whether you're forgiven or not. That can't be what this means for a couple of reasons. Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned. And this is a very important thing that every believer must understand, that even if we sin by hurting someone's feelings, even if we sin by stealing something, even if we sin by committing adultery, even if we sin by being jealous, truly and ultimately that sin is against God. And so we might want to come to our brother or sister, have reconciliation, apologize and get their forgiveness for that sin, but ultimately the sin is against God. And so no one can come to me and say, Eli... Can you please forgive me because I had an idol in my life? And I can then say, yes, you're, you're forgiven based on my will to forgive you. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Daniel chapter 9, verse 9 says, To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. It's Him who gets to forgive, not us. Now, you might know this story, but in Mark chapter 2, at one point Jesus says to somebody, Your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees have a fit because they say, Who can forgive but God alone. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus doesn't correct that statement. And the significance of that in Mark is because Jesus can forgive sins, and that proves He's God. That's one of the things He says, and then He does a miracle to prove that what He's saying is true, to show them, I, I can forgive sins because only God can forgive sins, and I am God. So um, that's why Jesus can forgive sins, and the Pharisees didn't make the connection. But so... Um, it doesn't mean for us that we have this same authority. It can't mean that because only God can do that. Now, it's also not uncommon in speech that we say we're doing something when it's really God doing it. I want to give you a couple of examples of this. In Jude 1 verse 23, it talks about saving others by snatching them out of the fire. That we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to be about the business of saving people by snatching them out of the fire. Now, is it really us? saving them? Is it really us snatching them out of the fire? No, it's God in us doing that, right? It's not us doing it. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he can be weak to those who are weak, and he's learned to become all things to all people so that he might win some. Now, is it really him who's winning them? No, it's God in him that wins the lost. It's God in him that saves people, that does this work of salvation. But Paul will say, I become all things to all people so that I might win some. So in the same way here, if you forgive the sins of any, it's not really the apostles forgiving, it's God through them. And so there, even though we don't have the authority to say, 
Father, forgive that person because I said so. We have what I would call a delegated authority. Do you all know what delegation means? If you are overseeing some project, you might have others helping you and you can give them tasks so that you don't have to do it all yourself. You're, you're delegating tasks to them so they don't have to do it all. So delegated authority means because we know what it takes to get forgiveness, we can have the authority to say, if you do these things, you will be forgiven. And we have the authority to proclaim that. And that's what we see in Scripture. We, see, we don't see the apostles and acts going around forgiving people and saying, okay, I'll forgive you, I'll forgive you, I'm not going to forgive you. What we see in Acts is stuff like this. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, where Peter says, everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So here he is proclaiming this is what it takes to receive forgiveness. And if someone believes, Peter could then say authoritatively, your sins are forgiven you. Not because of my will, not because of anything I've done, not because I'm special, but because if you believe in him, you're forgiven. And in the same way, if you preach the gospel to somebody and they say, that's not for me, I'm not ready for that, I don't want to believe that, you can say authoritatively, delegated authoritatively, your sins are not forgiven you. The wrath of God is still upon you. And it's not because you're anything special, it's because you know what it takes to get forgiveness. And so that's what Christ is saying here. Receive the Spirit. As the Father sends me, I send you, and I send you with a message, with a gospel, and you're going to proclaim those who are forgiven will have forgiveness because you know what it takes. You've been with me. You've heard this gospel. You know what it takes. And so the same thing is true to us today. As Jesus was sent, so are the apostles. And as they were sent, so are we. We are sent to bring good news of the kingdom, of forgiveness, of eternal life, of salvation to the world. And as we share the gospel with people and they respond with faith, we can tell them matter-of-factly their sins have been forgiven. Not because we have personally forgiven them, but because we know what it takes. And so we have this delegated authority. And we should be doing this. We should be proclaiming the gospel with authority. Because we have the truth. We know what it takes. If you were a doctor and someone had a very simple problem and you knew what kind of medication would take it away in three days, you could say authoritatively, take this medicine and in three days you'll be better. You have the authority to do that. Not because you can personally heal them through medicine, but because you know that medicine will have that effect. In the same way, we can't personally save someone. We can't personally snatch them out of the fire. We can't personally forgive, but we know what it takes. So we have the authority delegated to us by Christ himself to go into the world, to preach this gospel, to preach forgiveness, and we should be about that business. All right, so in verse 24, we see that Thomas wasn't there when all this happened. Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to him, He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So where was Thomas? Why wasn't he with them? Isn't that kind of strange? They're all together and Thomas isn't there? Well, we don't know. John doesn't tell us, but there's a couple of possibilities. If they're all up in the upper room, maybe they would take turns going out to be getting provisions, getting food, maybe getting things, supplies. Someone's got to do it, so maybe they take turns and he just wasn't there. Or 
maybe, you know, as far as Thomas knows, Christ is still dead. He doesn't know Jesus has been risen. So maybe he's gone on to make plans. Maybe he's looking for a job. Maybe Who knows, right? He was following this Messiah. None of them understood he would raise again. They didn't get it. So now he's dead. He's without hope. He could be out. Who knows? We can make all sorts of conjectures about that. We don't know where he was. But based on this passage, the church forever has called Thomas Doubting Thomas. And it's a common thing today to hear this term, Doubting Thomas, to apply to anybody who doesn't believe something. Oh, they're just being a Doubting Thomas. I would like to suggest that he is not any more doubtful than anybody else in this story. Um, Mary Magdalene, for example, didn't believe until she saw Jesus, right? She saw an empty tomb. She didn't get it. She's crying, and all of a sudden, there's this, she thinks it's the gardener, and it's Jesus. Then she believes. She goes and tells the disciples. They don't believe, right? They, they, they know that the grave is empty, but they're still alone and afraid, and then he appears in their midst. And when is the first time they rejoice? After he shows them the marks in his hands and the side, it says, Then they rejoiced. That was in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So they didn't believe either until they saw. And so here Thomas is saying, I'm not going to believe until I see. And that's not setting him apart from the rest of the disciples because they all didn't believe until they saw. And in fact, I would propose that it was necessary for Thomas to see because of the credentials of what it meant to be an apostle, which we'll get into later. One of the important credentials was that they had to have seen these things. They couldn't have secondhand knowledge as part of their credentials. So we'll get into that. But just keep that in mind as we read these next verses, starting in verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the doors, having been shut, and stood in their midst. The same thing as last time, right? Doors were shut, and all of a sudden, he's just there. Does it again, for Thomas' sake, all over again. And he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger, and, and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then Thomas says to him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And before I get to that last sentence, I just want to point out here something. Thomas, this is one of the most clear proofs of Jesus being God in the entire New Testament. Thomas here calls Jesus my God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus was very quick to correct all sorts of false doctrine. And whenever you look, even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when people see angels and they bow down before angels or they, or they try to worship angels, the angels always say, don't worship us. We are not God. Worship God alone. And yet here we see Thomas calls him my God, and Jesus says nothing. He does not correct Thomas. So, again, the Holy Spirit inspiring John to write this gospel they all believed Jesus is God, right? And yet, in this moment, he allows Thomas to be the one to proclaim it. Thomas, who wasn't there a second ago. So, I don't think John had this view of, this was doubting Thomas. No, Thomas got to be the one that seals up what John's been saying since the very first sentence 
in this gospel. The very first, he opens up this gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here, after being raised from the dead, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's significant. It's sealing up one of the main things John's been trying to say through this entire gospel. And he allows Thomas to be the one to say it in this gospel. There's much that, that John left out. We see a few verses down. Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that aren't written in this book. So he chose to write this one in there. And then Thomas gets to be the one to say, you're my Lord and you're my God. It's really significant. It's really tremendous. All right, and so then... Verse 28, you know, he says, Well, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Well, who's Jesus talking about here? I mean, if you think about it, is, is this Jesus scolding Thomas and saying, Oh, now you believe because you saw? All of them are blessed because they believed and didn't see. Is that what he's doing here? Because if you think about it, none of them believed until they saw. So everyone standing there while Jesus is with them, everyone there, when he's saying, blessed are those who believed and didn't see, none of them are part of that blessing. So who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Now before I get into that, I, I want to take a little sidetrack here for a second and discuss a little bit about why I think it was necessary for all of them to see um, as being apostles. So the word apostle... In the Greek is apostolos, and it just means sent one. So technically, anybody today who's sent to do anything is an apostle. You could call a missionary apostle. You could call the mailman an apostle. He's sent to deliver mail. But that's not what the Bible means when it says apostle. The Bible doesn't mean missionary when it says apostle. The Bible doesn't mean someone who is sent. The Bible means these specific twelve and, and I'm, just to give you an example of that, we have this word president today, right? Well, president is just a Latin word that means someone who presides over something else. So technically, I could say, I'm the president because I'm the leader of my household. Or, I'm the president because I preside over this Bible study. In fact, in Justin Martyr's um, 150 AD, very early church writing, the leader of the group was called the president. That's the way he referred to the, the, the pastor, the guy that was this teaching on Sunday morning. So, um, but that wouldn't, wouldn't make sense today for me to say, I'm, hi, I'm President Eli Taft, right? Because we have this different meaning. In America, president now means the president of the United States, Donald Trump, President Trump, right? So for me to say, I'm President Taft, they're like, no, President Taft died a long time ago. <laughs> um, so we use, so, so words do matter. And even though I could technically say I'm a president, I shouldn't say that because of what president means here. Um, and in the same way, the word apostle had a specific meaning in the New Testament. And so we shouldn't be going around calling people apostles today that aren't. Just as an example, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. Acts chapter 1, they're upstairs, they're praying together, and Judas has now died. And Peter says... I think we need to find another apostle to replace Judas so we have this number 12 the way Jesus intended it. And the requirements in Acts 1 is that it had to be someone who walked with Jesus from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist through the time that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. That person had to be there for all of it, to have seen with his own eyes. 
the apostles couldn't be anybody who had second-hand or third-hand or fourth-hand knowledge. They had to have been there because the New Testament wasn't written yet. When they were going around planting churches, there was no document that said this is what Jesus taught. So these apostles had the authority to go into any church and say, nope, you're doing it wrong, and here's why. I was with Jesus, I walked with him, this is what he meant when he said that, and I'm an apostle, I have the authority to do that. We don't have that today in the church. We don't have anybody that can come in here and say, you're doing it wrong because I actually was there when Jesus said that, and this is what he meant by that. We don't have that. And so when you have people today calling themselves apostles, I think they're just confused. Because people, there are people today that say, I'm an apostle, apostle so-and-so. And they might just mean sent one. Or they might really believe there are still apostles today that have this kind of authority. It's, it's wrong. Um, Ephesians 2 says that, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and this Bible is that. This is the writings of the apostles and the prophets. The prophets meaning the Old Testament, the apostles meaning the New Testament. This is our foundation now. So if anybody comes today and says, I'm an apostle, and they want to teach things that aren't in this book, this is our foundation. And so um, it was necessary for them all to have seen everything. They had to see in order to believe and have firsthand knowledge of those things. And I'm saying this because it seems clear that this is a very important credential for the apostles. Thomas had to see it in order to be an apostle. The others had to see it as well. So when he's saying, oh, so now you believe, now, you've, now that you've seen, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe, he's not talking about them. He's not singling out Thomas as being a doubting Thomas where the others believed before this. What he's doing is Jesus is looking into the future knowing that for the next couple of thousand years, there are going to be believers that haven't seen these things. We don't get to experience Jesus the way they experienced him. They were sent by Jesus to go out into the world and preach this gospel and to build churches built on the foundation of what they were teaching because they had first-hand knowledge. Today, what we have is the Bible. We have historical evidence to back it up, which we can research and become convinced these things really did happen. We can also look at the lives of Jesus and the disciples and come to a pretty clear understanding that this wasn't just some man-made religion meant to, to give anybody riches or wealth or power, because none of them were rich, none of them had power, they were all crucified and persecuted and murdered. This wasn't a religion that a man would have made up, and so we can look at those things and come to good conclusions about the fact that this is the Word of God, this is the truth, and it's, it's sufficient evidence for us. But still, it's not the same as if He was walking with us right now. And so it is a little bit harder today to have faith than if we had just been there and seen it all. And so Jesus, looking thousands of years ahead, knowing what it's going to take for us to believe, having not seen, pronounces a special blessing on us. And He says, Blessed are those who believe yet haven't seen. So that means all of us have a special blessing from God because we get to believe and we haven't seen. Because Jesus, knowing it's going to be harder for us, He walked the earth, He walked in flesh and bone, He sympathizes with our weakness, He knows how hard it's going to be a thousand years later to be like, why haven't you come back, Lord? It's been a couple thousand years. So He says, blessed are those. He's talking about us. All right, so chapter, uh, verse 30. <clears throat> Therefore, many other signs... Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is John's purpose statement, 
We've referred to this over and over again going through this gospel. It's amazing to finally get this far, but John says, look, he did a lot more than what I wrote. And so when people try to say, well, there's these contradictions because John says one thing and, and Luke says something else. Look, they, none of them were saying, I'm going to document every single thing. So um, John wrote these specific things so that we would read them. And again, it, I love how it's all connected. He just finished saying how Jesus said, blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. John, knowing that everyone who's reading this gospel is someone who didn't see with their own eyes and yet believed. And so he's looking forward and now he's saying, I wrote these things for you so that you could read them and you could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you can have life in his name. This is why the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this gospel. This is why we've been reading it on Sundays, so that we can read it and believe and find life. Not just eternal life later, not just life after death, but life today, life right now. Um, John said a few chapters back in John 17, verse 3, that eternal life is knowing God. And that's how we find life. And that begins today. It continues today. So we have life in His name, in our belief, and in our continually making progress in our faith. So it's not just eternal life later. It's knowing God and it's right now. So when we believe in Christ, when we put our faith in Him, Romans 6 talks about how we, we identify with Christ's death and resurrection and how we are our old man, our old flesh is buried with Christ and that because Christ rose, we now have this, this new life. And it says in Romans 6.11, So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And don't let sin reign in your body so that you obey it in its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, that's this new life He's given us, alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So Paul's basically saying, you've been given new life, now act like it. So we get to believe in Christ, we get to read these words, believe it, and in believing, we have life in His name, and if we found life in His name, let's act like it. Let's start living our life in this newness of life, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and living for God. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for this gospel. We have one chapter of it left, and I just pray that you would allow it to continue to sink in, that the words we've read would not return to you void, but they'd continue to do, do work in our souls, to, to, to till us and to, to bring forth fruit for, for righteousness, for, for new life. Help us to have a new passion for your glory today. Help us to have a new passion for reaching the lost, for sharing the gospel with those that might not know you, even those in our lives that claim to be Christian yet that don't have any fruit. Help us to recognize we live in a place where basically everyone says they're a Christian, and so many, God, they've been growing up culturally and they haven't really come to that sense of desperation of I need a savior help us to be that instrument that can work uh, miraculously in this time and in this place in this culture to bring out real fruit for your glory we ask these things in the name of your son Jesus Christ amen, amen.